turn to Colossians. Um, we're going to, since Tim Ryan uh, filled in the last couple of weeks um, for us, it's been three weeks since we've been in Colossians, and so I wanted to review a little bit of where we left off because it all goes together, of course, so we kind of got to go with that. But if you look in uh, chapter 2, this is kind of where, for me anyway, that the thrust of this whole portion starts to uh, really come together for me. And uh, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 says, In Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and in Him, here's the, here's the really significant point, we have been made full, right? Past tense, we have been made full. Not you're going to be, you have been made full, right? So then moving on, as we saw, this first portion, as I said, is going to be just review of three weeks ago. Moving on into chapter 3, Paul continues instructing us regarding our, our, the fullness in Christ that we have. So look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. If then, and we said that probably this is ESV, probably a better translation of that is since. Okay, since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And, and we looked at what these things above are. They're, they're not the physical things of heaven, such as the literal throne of Christ. You know, you're not supposed to be trying to imagine in your mind what that looks like. Yeah, there he is sitting next to the Father on this throne. You know, that's not what we're supposed to be going after. Paul was using figurative language here. And the things above, they, they weren't, he wasn't referring to material things, but rather things that have to do with, with God, Jesus's in particular, sovereign reign over the universe he, as he fills the universe with his power. Now, you might struggle with trying to understand how Jesus's power could be filling the universe now with all the turmoil that's in the world, right? So what do you think that means? For you, for you and I to focus upon the uh, sovereign reign and rule and power of Christ in the world, if you believe that that He is and that that's what's going on, what does that mean? What do you think that could entail? You know, because I mean that's 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 the argument from a lot of non-believers and atheists. You know, if there's a God, you know, why why we got all this turmoil in the world? Why all this wickedness? Why all this sin? You know, why evil? If you take it that far, right? So, what do you think? How do you reconcile that in your mind? Freedom of choice. Pardon? Freedom of choice. Freedom of choice, okay. So, what about... Um, um, go ahead, Dave. Well, the scriptures teach us that he is not of the world, and as Christians, we're not of the world, but we have his spirit in us that gives us peace in the midst of Okay. And he overcame the world himself. Good. Yeah, that's it. So we're supposed that that's more of, of what I think, you know, is that we're to focus on his working in the lives of people, right? And so um matter of fact, here's a good illustration of this. We had dinner I had dinner, my wife's out of town, y'all can pray for me. I'm all by myself. But I did the dishes this morning before I came. Anyway, um um had dinner with some people last night, and, and this lady was in, um, oh, I can't remember the country, uh, somewhere around Turkey. And um, 
years ago on a mission trip, and she was talking about how downcast the people were, you know, because they have no joy, they have no hope. But then the believers, she said, you could take a hundred people and have, you know, eight or ten believers in that group of people and not know who the believers were and just look at them and be able to tell who the believers were. Right. I think that's what we're talking about, because in Christ, to me, maybe you guys could explain it. I certainly can't. It's this uh, it's this awareness, right? This awareness of God active in my life that I didn't conjure it up. I don't have to stir it up. It is there. Right. I mean, that's that's a real thing. And, you know, I always wondered when I started understanding the doctrines of grace, this perseverance of the saints, you know, it's like, oh gosh, you know, I got to persevere. I got to put my nose to the grindstone. That's a work of God in our lives. Isn't that awesome? I don't have to do that. So that presence of God's sovereign rule and reign over the earth, I think it's like, like when you start to sin, you know, and then you have this conviction, the Holy Spirit's convicting you. You know, if all you do is is think about the sin and, oh, my God, because we're going to get into that in a minute, where Paul's telling us to absolutely execute these things in our lives. And, and matter of fact, he goes back to in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 23, that tells us, you know, if we put in these um, self-made religions and asceticisms and the severity to the body, they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh because you're, then you're still thinking about those things. So setting our minds on the things above is us focusing on God and his character, his presence, his heavenly joys, his, you know, his attributes, right? His tenderness, kindness, meekness, those things. And when we start to focus on that, and if we can train our minds to do that, when the sin thought first hits, then we have victory because you can't think about God and be worshiping him and be thinking about your brain doesn't split in half. You know, this half's over here thinking about the sin and this half, you know, as we think, set our minds on the things above, then we're not going to be about sinning. So you could say it this way. We're not to be seeking a heavenly geography, but we're to be seeking the one who dwells there. And he says set, and as I told you before a couple of weeks ago, that that's a present imperative, which means it's a continuous action all the time, right? And, and why do you think it's, has, it's continuous and is required all the time? What do you think? Continuous action. Because if we don't, what's going to happen? I'm going to go back to doing it Tim's way, right? I mean, we forget, right? So we, this is a continuous thing. And um, he tells us uh, that we're not to set our minds, if you look at the verses there, on earthly things, which would include what? You remember what we talked about? It's been three weeks. The, the material things, right? Immaterial things of the world. So it kind of covers the gambit, right? Immaterial and material, like honor, position, advancement. So the difference is that Christian, a Christian is no longer to see things as if they are all that matter in the world, right? You know, our stuff, our position in life, you know, our economic status, our position, what, however you want to put that, none of that matters. Why? It's temporal, yeah. Not, it, it's absolutely temporal, has nothing 
to do with our relationship with God. Now, that's a little bit tough for an American, isn't it? Um, But when you go to places of the world where they aren't consumed with materialism, it's... um, it's uh, you see the real deal there, you know, when people are really focused where they need to be. And, you know, if you go somewhere for more than a short-term trip, more than a couple of weeks, right? Anybody that's ever, has anybody been out of America for more than a couple of weeks? Isn't it what we would call reverse culture shock coming back? I mean, it's just crazy, you know, I mean, you turn on the TV and you, you hadn't seen a TV in three or four weeks or a month, you know, or a couple months, and you turn it on. And what do we all say before we come back? I'm not going to do that, <laughs> right? How long does that last, right? Anyway, that's a whole other lesson. So the difference uh, between a Christian is that we no longer see those things as if they are what matter. And he, he says in chapter 3, verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That is a spectacular future that awaits us. Isn't that awesome? That's what we got to look forward to, right? He's telling us not to fix our thoughts on the material and the immaterial things of this world, but to pray for our minds to be set on the things above. You know, hold scripture dear to your hearts. Reflect on past history, um, I mean, how can you not rejoice when you reflect on your past, right? I mean, if you look where you were and where you are, if you're in Christ now, you can't but not rejoice, right? And um, so then in in verses 5 through 9, we went in great depth looking at these challenges to lay this stuff aside. He says in verse 5, "...put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature." Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. I mean, think about that. That's where you used to walk, where I used to walk, and now we're not. So, again, uh, we won't spend a lot of time here because we looked at these in great detail, but there's four elements that he gives us of, of sinful sensuality that must be executed. They must be killed. The King James says mortify it, right? The first is immorality. That's the word we get pornography from. It means every kind of immoral sexual relation. The second word is impurity. That's moral uncleanliness. This is when the imagination kicks in with sexual immorality and speech and the deed um, and speech and actions of a sensual heart, filthy mind. The third is uh, element is lust. <clears throat> That's the shameful emotion which leads to the sexual excesses. The fourth um, is evil desires. That just means a wicked, self-serving lust of our own. And, and I mean, this is a really deadly quartet if we don't put these things aside. Paul says they have to be executed, put to death. And that's a very violent metaphor, isn't it? Which ex- it expresses the pain and the effort that we're to take. And that's hard for me to understand today because we think there's a lot of violence in our world today. But I'm reading a book right now uh, called Dodge City. It's one of Al Mohler's summer reading lists. And, I mean, this wasn't that long ago, right? I mean, my grandfather was born in 1885. 
you know, and I'm in 78 right now, you know, that's like, uh, well, earlier in the book, it was in 73, that was a, uh, or 1872, that was just 100 years before my wife and I were married. That's not that long, right? And I mean, you talk about wickedness, and I mean, you know, you didn't like the way somebody looked at you, you just shot them, right? But uh, Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson, they had this technique called buffaloing. They were some, they were, when they weren't gambling, they were lawmen in Dodge, and um, they would just, they had a technique where somebody taught Wyatt Earp how to buffalo somebody, they would hit them on the top of the head with their gun and knock them out, and then they wouldn't have to shoot them, they'd drag them off to the jail, but I mean, wickedness, executed, right? Today, for us, when we think about that, it's clean and sterile, so to speak, but if you go back a hundred years and you talk about executing something, it was a nasty, violent crime. And that's what we're supposed to be carrying out, only it wouldn't be a crime to carry it out on sin, right? It would be what God's telling us to do. Kill it. And, you know, I would venture to say, you know, that none of us have gone probably to that extent in our lives to get rid of the things that we struggle with. In Hebrews, I can't think of the exact address of it, but, but the writer of Hebrews says, you haven't resisted sin to the point of shedding blood yet, have you? Paraphrase, right? You know, if a guy came up to me in my job and said, you know, man, I couldn't help it. I got drunk last night and he's road rashed from head to toe in blood, you know. And I said, well, what happened? And Well, you know, I, I was fighting the sin so hard. I ended up, you know, I'd say, OK, you know, probably OK that you got drunk if you fought it that hard. You know what I mean? That's kind of a little slight there. But we haven't fought it to the point to where any of us have bled. Have you? I haven't. I haven't fought my sin to the point to where I'm bleeding because of it. So that's that's kind of what he's getting at here. That's how we we got to execute these things and um, kill them, you know. So uh, put them to death. So he's telling us here um, that we need to kill the members of our body because they lead to at the end. Look at that. It says greed which is idolatry. So the mention of greed at the end of a list of sexual sins seems a little weird, doesn't it? But it's highly significant, um, and and it's intimately associated with them. It's really just another form of the same type of evil desire, because then you're, you're, you're fixing your mind not on the sensual sins, but now on, on material things of the world, and that's where the greed kicks in. So this is, it's serious business because both of these sins, he tells us, provoke the wrath of God. And I dare say that is not something any of us want to try and play with, do we? The wrath of God. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. So we're to slay these regardless of the blood and the pain. We're to put off the evil attitudes. And he gives us those. We move from the sensuality sins to the evil attitudes in verses 8 and 9, where he says, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. So anger was the first word we looked at. That's that growing inner anger. Wrath, it's the boiling over of that anger. It's the quick to temper. Malice is viciousness of mind, slander is hurtful speech, which defames someone's character. And these unchecked then turn into obscene talk from our mouths, right? And he continues in verse 9, do not lie to one another. Lying, you know, is a, as we said before, is a great sin against God. 
And uh, we know from Scripture that uh, he might just kill you like that for doing it because he did it to Ananias and Sapphira. Instantly died when they lied, right? He wanted truth, not deception, not hypocrisy. So Paul's reason for living a godly life was this. Look at verses uh, 9 and 10. Seeing that you have put off, got rid of all that, right? Don't have a problem anymore. We've done that. Put off, but we're continuing to do it each and every day. The old self with, with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So all authentic believers have a new self. You okay with that? New spiritual sensitivities and abilities. All of us. 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? Therefore, if any man is in Christ, what? He's a new creature. New. The old is gone. But this remnant of the flesh that we fight each and every day is there. That's what we're continually to nonstop be putting off, killing, slaying. So God never gives us a put off, don't do this, Tim Brown, without giving me a do this, Tim Brown, right? That's the way God works. Isn't he great? Because he doesn't just leave you hanging. Okay, you got rid of that. You know, I mean, it's kind of like when we're hungry. You know, we have a choice, right? I can eat something healthy. I'm hungry. These hunger pains have to be curbed in order for me to focus and do my work or whatever else, right? I can eat something healthy or I can eat something unhealthy. Nonetheless, I got to put something in there. And, and that's, that's where we've got to be. God, does, we, we don't put on more bad stuff for the good, the, the uh, bad stuff that we put off. So let's see then what he tells us to put on in verses 12 through 14, chapter 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So he, he begins in verse 12 there with a welcome and a soothing description of believers. Look at that. I mean, have you ever thought of yourself that way? God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. I mean, think of that. If you're in Christ, you are chosen by God, holy and beloved. I mean, that, that's a remarkable list of titles, chosen ones, holy and beloved. And uh, the Colossians now know that they were chosen by God because of, and because of that, they were secure, right? I mean, you may know some people or have heard teaching that you can lose your salvation. That would mean that God would have to have chosen you, as the scripture says, and then discarded you. You know, you can't, it doesn't work that way, right? God, Jesus said in John six thirty seven, I think that uh, all that the Father gives to me, you know, come to me and I won't cast any of them out. God, in, in Christ, we're secure. And, and we need to, regardless of how good or how bad your day is going, you need to focus on the fact that you are eternally secure with Christ. And, you know, uh, Kit and I have a lot of conversations about, you know, we're aliens here. Scripture teaches us that. We don't belong here. This isn't our home. We're just passing through. Uh, what are the other ways you can say that, right? 
this is temporary, temporary duty assignment. You know, when I was in the military, you'd get tired of where you were stationed, and every once in a while you'd get a blessing, and they called it temporary duty assignment, and you'd go somewhere else for a couple of weeks. Well, you you never could really settle in there, right? Because it was only a couple of weeks, and you, but that that's what we are here, right? We aren't, Paul tells us in Philippians, we're not citizens here. This isn't our home, you know, I'm closer than some of y'all to just in the natural flow of, of life to go into my real home, right? And, and we need to be focused on that and look forward to that and, and know that we're secure in that. And when that happens, then all this material want stuff just goes away, right? It just subsides. I'm not, you know what? If I'm supposed to have a nice center console fishing boat, in the new heavens and the new earth, I'll have one, right? I mean, that's just how it is, right? You know, and, and that's how I need to think of that. I'm just passing through here. And uh, I mean, we are secure. And the Colossians were given the title holy, chosen ones, beloved. I mean, wow, that, that just, those are names that just soothe the conscience, right? And prepares us for putting on which he's getting ready to command us to do, right? So he's getting ready to give us, one commentator I read said, the wardrobe of the saints. Isn't that awesome? We're getting ready to put on the clothes of saints, beautiful garments. So verse 12, put on is God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So the first article of clothing is compassionate hearts. Now, Love the King James on this one. It says, bowels of mercy. Put on bowels of mercy. Because the the word literally refers to the stomach or the entrails, which is where so much of our emotion comes from, right? The inner, just that inner self, right? Uh, Commentator Peter O'Brien says that this term forcefully expresses personality at the deepest level, especially in the matter of living. It comes from when, and so a good translation of compassionate hearts might be tenderness of heart, tender mercies, right? The ancient world was merciless, right? Merciless. They, they, they didn't know what that, the, the maimed and the sick and the aged, like me, they were discarded, the mentally ill were subject to inhumanities that would be incomprehensible for us. But Christianity brought compassion, and it still does today. True Christianity does, right? The gospel brings sympathy. It brings tenderness of heart. And um, Paul's telling us here that if we are new creatures in Christ, we must have compassion in our hearts for people. A great example of this is told by um, Dr. John Perkins. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's an American uh, Christian uh, minister. He's a black guy, civil rights activist, Bible teacher, author, philosopher, community developer. He wrote a book, uh, Let Justice Roll Down, and he tells about a time of dark extended discouragement in his life when he was ill, and seriously thinking of, of giving up the struggle, then he met a lady named uh, Dr. Roberts. And Perkins said this, Dear uh, Dr. Roberts, I'm sorry, Dr. Roberts was one of the 
few white persons I had contact with at the time. And she, well, she met me on the level of my humanity and not just on the theological level preferred by so many church folks. Dr. Roberts saw him through this great crisis with her merciful compassion, and it had a deep impact on his life. And, and we're all called to do the same thing, right? That's what God's calling us to with these compassionate hearts. All of us must be tenderly merciful. That's the first garment. Okay, the second garment of clothing is kindness. Kindness doesn't happen naturally in human relationships, does it? I might meet you the first time, you know, that I might not display that. It's not natural. Um, George, I found some funny things on this. George Bernard Shaw, a playwright, he died in 1950, but he once wrote to Churchill, and this is what he wrote. Quote, Enclosed are two tickets to the opening night of my first play. Bring a friend, parentheses, if you have one. Right? Is that not very kind, right? Well, listen to Churchill's reply. Dear Mr. Shaw, unfortunately, I'll be, I, I'll be unable to attend the opening night of your play due to a prior engagement. Please send me tickets for a second night, in parentheses, if you have one. <laughs> right? You know, we can understand, you know, there's some playfulness in those words, but the human personality naturally descends to harshness in word and deed, right? The great Archbishop Trench um, in the 1800s, uh, the prime mover behind the Oxford English Dictionary, he says the Greek word translated kindness is a lovely word for a lovely quality. Okay, so I mean, just even then wasn't used much. So it was used by Jesus. This is really awesome. In uh, the same Greek word, Matthew eleven thirty, my yoke is easy. That's the same word for kindness. Isn't that neat? And when Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my yoke is kind, same thing. All right, the, um, and actually as well, uh, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And it is a quality of God himself. In Romans 2, 4 tells us that God's kindness leads to repentance. I mean, what does that mean? We can't even repent on our own. It's God's kindness that drives us there. And uh, the third garment that we're to put on is humility, a word that the Greeks never applied to themselves. Isn't that crazy? Never applied it to themselves. And... uh, William Gladstone, I don't know why all these guys are from the 1800s, but uh, the learned prime minister of England once remarked to his scholarly peer, John Morley, quote, it is a pathetic reflection that while humility is the sovereign grace of Christianity, the Greeks had no symbol in their language to denote it. Every word akin to it has in it some element of meanness, feebleness, or contempt, end quote. But the gospel took this word of contempt and made it one of its chief graces humility isn't that awesome and it's used to describe jesus humbling himself to the point of death um, jesus himself invited followers to learn from him as he was matthew eleven twenty nine, lowly in heart that's not a characteristic of modern society right because there's no humility in the world And um, Jesus, now keep in mind, was not thinking of a cringing, uh, groveling, servility, you know, and 
oh, I'm such a wicked man, thinking so poorly of myself, right? That's not what humility is. He's, he's teaching a, a, the absence of self-exaltation, the not going around and pushing myself up. So, we, you know, when we are wearing this garment of humility, humility um, you know, you, you can tell who those people are, right, when you see it. The next item of clothing, the fourth one, is meekness. And uh, <clears throat> this is really good. I'll be shocked if anybody's ever heard of this. But have you ever heard of the dependent order of really meek and timid souls? Have you ever, their acronym is DOORMATS. <laughs> you got like that? Isn't that good? And uh, this Christian humorist, uh, J. Upson, Upton Dixon, joked after writing a pamphlet called Cower Power that he was thinking about finding a, founding a society called Doormats, Dependent Order of Really Meek and Timid Souls. The society would, allow, would adopt a yellow caution light as their logo. And using Matthew 5.5, 5, the doormat's motto would be, the meek shall inherit the earth, if that's okay with everybody else. <laughs> right? Of course, the society didn't last very long because Upton gave up the plan when someone objected. <laughs> right? So, of course, you know, that didn't last. But joking aside, to be considered meek is not a compliment in today's society at all. It carries a stigma of being a coward. Um, a dictionary search, listen to this. This is so wrong. A dictionary search will render definitions of meekness as easily imposed upon, overly submissive, spineless, docile, compliant. You know, that's not biblical meekness, is it, at all? The world's view is, is you're weak. You're a weakling, a coward if you're meek. And really nothing could be further from the truth. And um, Jesus declares that, you know, that we have to recognize our spiritual poverty, that we mourn over our sin, and that we need to embrace this characteristic. Really, meekness is strength under control. I mean, think of Moses, right? In Numbers 12, 3, um, Moses is called a meek man. And, and yet, at the same time, he was a man who could decide, be as hard as nails, right? Rise up in anger at the proper time. So that's the characteristic. Those wearing the true garment of meekness are immensely powerful people because they're controlled by God and not their flesh. Isn't that good? Um, so the final garment is patience. Uh, some translations may have long-suffering, and this is in the face of insult or injury. And again, this is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And it's based on, on a lively, outgoing faith in God to be exercised towards everyone. Not just some people, towards everyone. How do you stack up on that one? That's probably my hardest one. And, and you know, what reels me back in is realizing that Jesus wore all of these garments all the time. And... He faced things that I will never face, and he didn't take some of these off and lay them aside. He wore them all the time. So when we wear them, we are, of course, resembling him, right? Now, <clears throat> these, I, I hate this part of this. You ready? All these garments can be worn only 
in community with other people. In other words, in relationships. Because it is awful tempting to think that these garments are so much easier to wear if I'm not around anybody. Right? Just leave me alone. So, I mean, compassion. You know, if you were all by yourself, you wouldn't have to show compassion on anybody. It's easier to be kind when we are away from mean people. You know, it would be easier to put on humility and gentleness if we're not being pushed around by proud and assertive people. You know, I mean, how much easier would patience be in isolation? But that's not the way it works. You know, I've had great ideas of moving up and to the mountains and building a nice home up there. And I'll share that with Shane sometimes. You know what he says? Well, who are you going to minister to up there all by yourself? You know, <laughs> Great point. I don't belong here forever, so let's just stay in the trenches and go with it, right? And then if I'm supposed to have that mountain home with that center console fishing boat, I'll have it in the new heavens and the new earth. Yes, sir. Yeah, I could be. That's right. You know, that's right. Well, I had a, you know, Tom Devaney in our church. He, he years ago, they bought a campground. He had the idea that he was going to go and, you know, Christian campground. Hey, and they went, and guess who came? All Christians. <laughs> the word got out. They didn't have anybody to witness to, you know. His whole idea was to go and do ministry, and then the word got out. So it was a great Christian campground. So. We've got to be in community. And again, as with the putting off, this putting on means that we have to do it over and over and over and over again. It's a continuous thing. So that being said, what will happen when, when we put on this, this attire? Verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So wearing this saintly attire promotes the capacity to be able to bear with other people. You know, if you're having a hard time with that, I mean, bearing with others means just to endure, to hold out in spite of persecutions and threats and injury and indifference and complaints. Hold out and don't retaliate, right? That's that's what it means. And you can't do that if you don't have those other garments on. So we got to have that. It's not a, it, this is a huge accomplishment, right? In the church, if anywhere on earth that this is to take place, it should be in the church. That we must bear with one another in love. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.10 that we're, we're workmanship. Literally, we're the master work of God. But if we're, we're not completed yet, right? So we got to bear with one another as this process is being completed. And then in verse 13, inevitably, this mutual forbearing extends to forgiving. Verse 13, if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, forgiveness has never, ever been in vogue, has it? I mean, have you ever really struggled immensely with taking that step? You're being convicted, and you have. And I'm I'm probably not even talking about well, maybe with spouse, but but outside of the spouse relationships, have you ever had to do that? And I've had to do it a couple of times, and it usually, you know, my pride um, made it where. 
it didn't work the way I wanted it to. Isn't that weird that we could even go there? You know, I had this, I used to work at this ministry where I talked bad about an employee that was the one that worked in the finance office there to another person. And, and, um, it was Faith Community Church that we were not that the person, not that ministry in the finance. This was another ministry, but I was attending Faith Community when this was when Craig was still the pastor before Shane came. And, and one Sunday he said, "Now we're going to be having the Lord's Supper next Sunday, so this week, you know, ask God to examine your heart so you can come to the table with a pure." And I mean, as soon as he said it, I knew I got to do something. I, I slandered that lady. And, and that's what we're supposed to put off earlier in chapter 3, right? So go to work Monday, and I'm going to talk to her, and didn't do it. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, didn't do it. Friday, okay, I mean, I am just grinding inside. Friday rolls around, and um, there was a mail room in the office there that probably was about as big as, you know, from those black boards to the, front row in that way small right so I'm in there getting something and she comes in there and you know my mind says all right perfect timing now's the time to do it I didn't do it and uh, I mean oh boy I mean I was just it was killing me and about two o'clock I heard her tell somebody else in the office yeah I'm knocking off a little early today I got to go do da 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 (laughs) and see y'all Monday and out the door she goes and I knew I, I got to go after her. So I did, and I did it, you know. And as I did it, she just said, oh, okay, well, thanks for telling me. You know, and I wanted some big <laughs> hoorah or something, you know. But that was for me, you know, and that, that's what he's talking about here. This, that's how we grow is our consciences con- with the Holy Spirit convicts us, and, and we, we get rid of that guilt like that. And it's... um. Here's a much more dramatic, very real uh, position to, to hear about forgiveness. Again, John Perkins, he tells of how he was beaten in a Mississippi jail, being repeatedly kicked, stomped on as he lay in a fetal position for protection. The beating went on and on as he writhed in a pool of his own blood while inebriated officers took turns using their feet and their blackjacks to beat him. At one point, an officer took an unloaded pistol, put it to his head, and pulled the trigger. Then another bigger man beat him until he was unconscious. As the night wore on, it got worse. During a conscious period, one of the officers pushed a fork down his throat. It was a barbarous torture. A great substantive reason to hate, right? But this is what happened as Perkin tells, his, tells it himself. Quote, the Spirit of God worked on me as I lay in that bed. An image formed in my mind, the image of the cross, Christ on the cross. cross. It blotted out everything else in my mind. This Jesus knew what I had suffered. He understood and he cared because he had experienced it all himself. This Jesus, this one who had brought good news directly from God in heaven, had lived what he preached, yet he was arrested and falsely accused. Like me, he went through an unjust trial. He also faced a lynch mob and got beaten. But even more than that, he was nailed to a rough wooden planks and killed, killed like a common criminal. 
At the crucial moment, it seemed at the crucial moment, it seemed to Jesus that even God himself had deserted him. The suffering was so great, he cried out in agony. He was dying. But when he looked at the mob who had lynched him, he didn't hate them. He loved them. He forgave them. And he prayed God to forgive them. Father, forgive these people, for they do not know what they are doing. His enemies hated, but Jesus forgave. I couldn't get away from that. It's a profound, mysterious truth. Jesus' concept of love overpowering hate. I may, I may not see its victory in my lifetime, but I know it's true. I know it's true because it happened to me. On that bed full of bruises and stitches, God made it true in me. He washed my hatred away and replaced it with a love for the white man in rural Mississippi. I felt strong again, stronger than ever. What doesn't destroy me makes me stronger. I know it's true because it happened to me. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. It is not enough to put up with each other to refuse retaliation. We must truly forgive. Isn't that awesome? And if we struggle with this, we got to do as John Perkins did and recall the immense forgiveness that we all have in Christ. And um, I mean, this this was an this guy. He's still alive in rural Mississippi. He's written. Uh, a lot of books, uh, Let Justice Roll Down is one. And uh, actually, I think I'm right with this. I think John MacArthur was with this guy the night that um, Martin Luther King was killed. And they, the two of them went together. I mean, MacArthur was on the cutting edge back then, a white guy in rural Mississippi going up to where uh, King had just been assassinated with a black man. You know, so... Paul finishes this wardrobe, though. We couldn't do it without this. We could do none of this. The the ultimate saintly garment is in verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I mean, think of a guy standing in front of Paul, attired in these flowing garments of the day, but no belt to hold it together. As beautiful as those garments are, they can't be properly fitted without a belt, so he adds the belt, love, right? It is possible It is possible to have some of the five garments on and not have love, but it's impossible to have love without having those other things. F.F. F. Bruce uh, calls love the grace that binds all the other graces together. And again, the imperative thrust here is continuous. We have to keep putting on love over and over and over again. And uh, that's actually the most important moral quality in a believer's life. It's, it's the glue that brings unity together and holds it together, right? And we will never enjoy mutual fellowship through compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, or patience or be able to bear with people or forgive each other unless we love one another. Uh, John MacArthur says, the way to sum up the commands of verses 12 and 13 is to say, love one another. And uh, again, another MacArthur quote is, love is the beauty of the believer dispelling the ugly sins of the flesh that destroy unity. So, great things to replace the uh, things that we're supposed to put away. And again, I just, you know, marvel at the graciousness of God to give us these commands to get rid of stuff, 
But then he gives us the replacement, you know, and that's so gracious of him. We don't have to be out searching for the stuff to put. Here it is, plain and simple, right? And if you don't know how to put those things on, uh, then, you know, talk to somebody else that can help you with that, right? And bind them together with love. You know, that's, um, I mean, if if you're married, you know, husbands and wives, that's, that's a great place to start with um, bringing, um, you know, with bouncing off of each other as we do that. Um, I think, uh, well, we'll stop with that. (laughs) So any questions? Further thoughts, comments? No? Well, we're dismissed then.